There's so many things I wanted to say, and now nothing seems appropriate. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, I know. The mayor says you might be staying here a while, maybe helping get a school started. Yes, I'm the new school mom. Well, that's mighty nice, ma'am. Me and Morg are going out to see Pa, tell him what happened. I might come east again, get some cattle. Maybe stop by here again. Stop by the schoolhouse? Yes, ma'am, I sure will. Well, goodbye, ma'am. Goodbye. Hi, welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by, and we are continuing our watch of John Ford movies, and we are watching My Darling Clementine, and she wore a yellow ribbon for this episode. So, Mike, uh, now that we've watched, uh, we've got through half of uh, our John Ford watches at this point, so where are you with John Ford kind of moving into this little double feature we're doing today? Well, I mean, he's not, uh, he's not provided anything bad so far that I've watched. That's pretty good, but with five <laughs> movies in the can for us. That's, that's not bad. Strangely, though, every time it comes up to the weekend or whatever day I've set aside to watch movies, and I'm like, okay, what assignment do I have for a <laughs> It feels <podcast?"> like work. <laughs> it's all, it always does. And it's yeah. like, no matter, like, you know, the previous episodes, I'm like, wow, I really like this, or I liked it a lot more than I thought. Uh, when I come up, you know, to uh, the saddle for my darling Clementine, I'm like, I'm looking at the pictures, and I see a, it looks like a real, I don't know, constipated henry ford that we have here like you know it's it, nothing seems appealing uh and the, also i want to point out that uh the picture they use on rotten tomatoes for henry fonda and the casting does not look yeah accurate. it's not great yeah it kind of looks like <laughs> henry fonda had a child with frankenstein is that yeah. <laughs> the big forehead and it's rough <laughs> So, I'm looking yeah, at it right now. It's not great. <laughs> that should not put you in the mood. But uh, up to this point, so I've what have been my requests? Um, uh, uh, stop no poor people. Poor people. Uh, so far, we haven't we haven't done that yet. Uh, I was excited about uh, going to war with John Ford because that's all I really knew about him. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I I think I've liked every movie so far better than you. So I should ask, where are you with John Ford? Because I feel like I come across more positive, even yeah, though I'm coming in negative. Which is so strange. Because but at the if, end of it, I'm always more positive. It's so strange because if people were privy to our behind-the-scenes conversations when we first first started you know, doing this John Ford thing, it'd be like, oh, Mike is going to be miserable for six episodes. For ten movies. Billy, just gonna... Billy Wilder is what I wanted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, I, I'm excited for this portion. Uh, because I feel like he does westerns. That that is where his talents really lie. Uh, because like the the one movie that I absolutely love that we've watched so far is Stagecoach. Of course, I knew I was going to love that. I'd seen it before. It's a great movie, and you know, it, it's one of those that I would start to question somebody if they're like, "Yeah, Stagecoach sucks." I'd be like, "Well, really? Like out of out of all the movies, that's the one that sucks." Like it's just a very well-made film, even if you're Have not you into heard the that genre. From anyone? 
Uh, not yet, thankfully. But I'm sure uh, now that you we're will. putting out these episodes, <laughs> we will hear it for sure. Because, uh, you know, just like there are people that love every bad movie, there are people that hate every good movie. So those people are out there. Um, so I'm excited to kind of go go back to this genre. But again, just like you, I mean, sorry, I haven't liked them as much as you, but <laughs> I have liked every one of these movies. There hasn't been a bad movie yet. Man, it's uh, your pick. You're, you're, let's go with one of the classics. Let's go with one of the see, titans this of the is, industry. This is the big difference between you and I as far as our picks. You pick things you're sure you're going to like, and I pick things I have no knowledge of. I'm like, let's go Nancy in blind. Myers let's do soon. it. Yeah, Nancy it Myers is. can't wait. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, yeah, so that's where I'm at. I'm still, like, overall v- very positive on John, John Ford. I think watching these movies has kind of proved to me why he is seen as one of the great directors. Like, you know, all these movies are good to great. Um, so I'm excited to kind of uh, move forward and find out if, especially like when we talk about She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, if the whole John Wayne thing still works for me. Because coming into this, I was kind of like, ugh, John Wayne. I'm not a big John Wayne fan. But, you know, watching him in Ford movies so far, I've been like, actually, he's very good here. John Ford he's gets great performances. Secondary character. And, uh, yeah, that's we're another. Gonna get him as the lead. On yeah, this we're going to get him as the lead in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's where I'm at. Um, so, as we mentioned, the first movie we're going to talk about is My Darling Clementine. And, you know, this is a story pretty much every moviegoer knows almost by heart. This is the, the Earps uh, at the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. Like, there have been numerous films made about this. It's part of pop culture at this point, you know, like probably younger. I'm not even younger viewers at this point, but like viewers our age would probably know this story best from the movie Tombstone. Uh, that's kind of our introduction to it, but it's just part Very of kind of Western lore. That movie. Yes, absolutely. So knowing that going in, and I assume you hadn't seen this movie before this, and I hadn't either. Um, did that impact uh, the viewing at all for you? The fact that like, oh, I know this story and I've seen it in maybe a more modern, quotable way. Uh, well, uh, let me... I didn't know that my darling Clementine was going to be a story about Wyatt Earp. I didn't know that at all. It so, doesn't exactly <laughs> scream that with the title, does it? It's... Well, I mean, he, you know, he with his love of folksy songs, I guess. I'm just like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we we've seen movies, unfortunately, I guess, uh, take their name from like a uh, pop song of the day, and I guess we've gotten <laughs> such distance from these that it's like right. it's fine. Uh, but that seems a little hokey, and so I didn't like the title, and I mean, it's got Henry Fonda, who I liked in Grapes of Wrath, uh, and I find when he's the lead, um, they, you know, he's kind of a prickly personality. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't really try to be charming. He is. I mean, he's kind of funny. Yeah. It seems like his, the Deniston special right there. That seems like something you would love. He's funny in his agitation, and yeah. so I like that about him. Um <laughs> So, yeah, it wasn't until, like, you know, some of the names start dropping and Tombstone. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> and then Dread set in uh, for what the very reason you said, where it's like, okay, I've seen Tombstone. I love Val Kilmer. Uh, you know, I don't know, probably once a week, a uh, a gif of Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday's used in some message that I send yeah. uh, that is mildly threatening to someone in some way. But, you know, everyone likes Tombstone, so everyone... Yeah, so it's, it's okay. I still like it. Yeah, it's okay. Um, <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, so yeah, it is John Ford, but you know, back in when did Tombstone come out? Was that like '94? I think that's right. '93, somewhere in that time. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was only room for one in that like sort of year stretch. Kevin Costner tried to do the same oh, thing. Oh yeah, White Earp came out around that yeah. same time, didn't it? Yeah, I still uh, haven't seen that movie because I was no, like, I saw I Tombstone. Either. Don't need it. Very good one. 
Um, but I'm like, okay, so this one's going to be a little different. It's far more, far more romantic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and the, the romance is actually handled in a, a far more dangerous, interesting way than it is in Tombstone, where it's mm-hmm. just like, <laughs> you know, Wyatt Earp gets his groove back or whatever. He's like, I like that more <laughs> <laughs> because she has personality. Like, you know, that I haven't rewatched Tombstone in years, but I probably would find some elements of it that I don't like as an adult. Sure. Um, this one, you know, I, I maybe because I was thrown off guard and then I got my footing and I thought, okay, I know what this is going to be. It's going to be John Ford's version of the gunfight, the okay growl. And then it, deviates into these weird sort of dynamics this weird like love triangle uh uh, that it constantly threw me for a loop and i i enjoyed it i enjoyed my time with it and maybe that just comes down to the performances but as you said ford certainly knows how to shoot a western and he also knows how to shoot uh henry fonda just sitting in a chair okay i was just epic iconic thing like a just gonna bring that up because at the very beginning you talked about this horrifically ugly poster it's not great uh (laughs) but not to like you know, pat myself on the back, but I did just buy this on Criterion uh, on their recent sale, and the the cover art there is that exact shot you're talking about of him kind of out on you know the porch of this office, leaning back in this chair. And there's something about uh, there's something about the way he's posed and kind of and just his stature, just the like the long legs, just like stretched out against this pose. It just really works and just screams western. Like you can just see that, and you kind of know know what you're in for. And I think Henry Vaughn is great here. And I think um, Stagecoach is without a doubt in my mind a better movie. But this might be my favorite of the movies we've watched so far. I like this a I lot. I thought it might be my favorite Western after I watched it. I, I thought so highly of it oh, Wow! after watching it. Uh, and I, I know what you mean because it's like, well, Stagecoach probably has more things you could point to if you were right. just going to pull a scene uh, right. and be like this. You know, the introduction of John Wayne. Uh but I, I think that it's it depends on you know who you're collaborating with, right? Like I don't think you can introduce Henry Fonda in the same way you introduce John Wayne as stagecoach. Like, and I actually like that Henry Fonda, <laughs> the way he plays his character is almost like the story that's revolving around him. It's just getting in his way of this other thing he was gonna do, and like you yeah. know, literally, like the way we're introduced to him is he's just trying to get through town, and he just wants a goddamn shave. And that's it. And he is so pissed <laughs> that even when scene. bullets are flying through the barber shop, that he's yelling for the barber, like, "Hey, are you gonna finish?" Like, you know, yeah, I love that he's us. not. He's not angry. He's just so irritated by this whole like, "Oh, fine, I will go kick this guy's ass if I can just get my goddamn shave." No, I don't want to be your sheriff. I just want to get a shave and a shower and get back on back on the road and get back to my life. And you know, because of certain things that happened in the very beginning of this movie, he's unable to do that. But I do also like how he relaxes very quickly into his role of the sheriff of this town. Like, none of it feels forced. It could it could be one of those things where it's like, well, I never wanted to do this with my life, and I'm being forced into this. It's just kind of like, well, this is my lot in life. This is what happened, so now I have to do this. So now I'm going to do the best job that I can. So he, so here we go. You know, it's like I'm the sheriff again. like I'm splitting hairs, but it read to me like this is a guy who likes having a, a firm grasp of control over over his life and his situations, uh, but not uh, he's not grasping for power. And I think that's you know that's the difference in the character who's given the badge and you know the gun or the ability to use the gun because he has the badge is that how can I use this to my advantage? And 
for him, at least the way he plays it, it's the advantage is the comfort of knowing that somebody will do something if something bad happens. And that's because that's, <laughs> I think in that, you know, first sequence in Tombstone, he like repeatedly asks like, what, you know, what the hell kind of town is this? And he says it so many times, <laughs> what kind of, like he's, he keeps asking different people, what kind of town is this? Like basically why is this happening? Right. And so he's a man who's just like, you know, if A happens, then B and C follows. And when B and C does not follow, it's just, he just like he can't stand it. So okay, fine. So I will I will take control. Obviously, yeah. there's a tragedy that necessitates this. You know, his brother is killed, so he's gonna stick around to like find out who did it. Um, but what I didn't expect, I, I was like, okay, this is just a pure, you know, revenge movie that's gonna be kind of uncomfortable because it's under the the guise of doing it through the law. Mm. Um, it's not just a vigilante, even though it may have those leanings. Uh, as I mentioned, the 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 weird love triangle with him and Doc Holliday and this idea of like befriending someone that in any other walk of life. I don't imagine this version of like Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday would ever hang out. But yeah, that's something I really liked about this actually. Cause you know, I did walk into this knowing it was about this subject matter. Mm-hmm. Unlike you, I kind of like, okay, I read the one sentence. Like if you go on IMDb, it says the Earp's battle of the Clintons of the okay corral. Like that is their well, description of the movie. So, much like Earp, I'm just resigned to my fate where I'm like, well, it's next on the list. Well, I have to watch it. Okay. Um, whatever. So I expected the kind of kinship that you usually see between Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. And here throughout the movie, it's strained. Like, it's never this, like, and then they bonded, and then now they're best friends forever. It's this constant kind of give and take. Like, Doc Holliday, through most of the movie, is on the wrong side of the law, and Wyatt Earp is on the right side of the law. So there's this, they don't know if they can trust each other. And then you bring in the the Clementine character, which really puts a strain on things, because, you know, Wyatt obviously is attracted to her, has feelings for her, but, you know... Clementine and Doc Holliday have been together for a long time, but she's coming back to make things work again, and he's pushing her away for, you know, reasons that we find out later. And then you've got the, you know, of course the name of the character is not great, but we have the character of Chihuahua, uh, the uh, the Mexican woman uh, who works at the bar, who's, who's also with Doc. So you have all these kind of moving pieces. So I like the fact that they don't try and make it clean. They don't try and make it like, and then we move this piece over here and move that piece over here, and now we're best friends. Like, no, even all the way to the end, there's there's got to be that give and take, and I think it's handled really well. I mean, there's a certainly a possessiveness to the uh, the love interest characters played by the women here, which was uh, you know of the time. I mean, I say of the time, like there wouldn't be a possessiveness in movies from like five years ago. I mean, right. So. <laughs> Um, but more but, so you know, in 1946. More so. Well, I mean, the, the speech that this version of it, that when Clementine is introduced, you know, that you have Fonda deliver is like, you know, any man, you know, within the country mile would like, you know, die to be with her. You know, like this basically like Doc Holliday, get your head on straight. What are you, why are you running from her? Like, and some of it is maybe, maybe he's just being a little nosy. Maybe he's like wanting to know because he seems to like, repeat himself that like basically anyone who's in his town is welcome as long as they're not doing anything unbecoming. Like, so it's just like, you know, that does seem like he's kind of sticking his nose in other people's business because he's wearing the badge. Right. Um, like you said, there's never that warmth where it seems like he necessarily cares too much for doc. I'd say the warmest scene is after Herb and Clementine attend a, uh, church hoedown of sorts or like it's a, a great dance sequence. I was, I was pretty impressed with Henry Fonda. I was Man's pretty, got some you know, moves. <laughs> normally, I don't focus too much on the uh, any sort of modern dance sequence, but I was 
<laughs> I was sort of enraptured by this one because I'm like, okay, what what is going to be considered good dancing then? Because you're presenting a character who doesn't seem that confident in his skills. Right. And I'm just like, so what is it? What is going to be the cool move? And it seems to be this weird like leg kick or yeah. high. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing there. But uh, anyway, um, after the dance, you know, you have, I guess, Wyatt Earp is feeling a little more comfortable or more benevolent. And trying to not be on this like quest for revenge, he's he's comfortable, right? He's finally comfortable, and maybe this will be his home going forward. And Doc Holliday walks in, and he's like, "Doc, you know, take a seat, like join us." Um, that that's getting to the weird love triangle aspect of it. This is I don't think I've ever seen one presented on film where all three characters are so clingy to yeah. one another and also like wanting <laughs> they're wanting distance from at least one part of that equation. So. Uh, with Doc Holliday, I don't think it, that he's wanting to like reprimand or like, you know, uh, take white art by the scruff for like stealing his woman. He just wants the absence of her. Like he basically is like right. an, an animal who wants to go off into the wilderness and die alone. Yeah. He doesn't want any part of his old life around him. Uh, and of course, Herb would be happy, you know, for Doc Holliday to like approve in some way, like of this. I, I don't know. It's, it's strange for this time period to have that that dynamic i would think this is like a you know it would be a western closer to like the 60s right. late 60s at that to see this sort of love triangle but I, so i was really impressed i mean it was a rare time dave where i was like i was actually not asking for them to fuck already because i'm like that <laughs> first that time. may be a little unbecoming of this you know this time period <laughs> first and only time another thing i noticed it you know when i watch these movies that are set not set but made in the 40s and 50s it makes me wonder like oh if you were making this same movie today how would it be be different and one of the things that came to mind because they have this you know you mentioned his brother being shot and they don't know who did it uh but the they you know the one plot device they have here is this you know this piece of jewelry uh that his brother had had bought for for his girl back home he was going to bring that to her um and, you know, that, of course, is gone after after his brother is killed and then makes a reappearance near the end of the film um, with a Chihuahua wearing it because someone has given it to her. But there's not a lot of moments where this is like seeded into the plot throughout. And it made me wonder if maybe if directors back in the 40s gave audiences more credit than they do now, because I feel like if this was made now, like we would we would have a whole extended sequence where we follow the path of this <laughs> Of this piece of jewelry through the through the neighboring towns until it finally comes to Chihuahua and then we figure out something has gone horribly wrong and we have to yeah, take revenge. I don't think a modern version would ever give you the doubt on the Doc Holiday character. I was like, did he give her that piece of jewelry? Like, I love that. That's one of my favorite bits in the entire in the entire script. Is that like for a half second you're like, oh. my like, I because don't they think don't have that Doc that. did this. They don't but... have the iconic bond that if you're coming in with other right. versions of the story. So you're thinking like, wait, is he being portrayed as some sort of like black hat? Like, because there oftentimes it seems like he could, you know, give or take having Earp around in his town, mm-hmm. like whatever. And he's kind of abusive. Um, he's kind of a jerk. Like, you know, I mean, and, it, and, and Doc Holliday always is in these stories. But you can't like if, you know, if you're going to make him a hero, you know, like you kind of do in Tombstone, you have to have the bond with Wyatt to balance out his shit talking. Right. But they don't really have that here. You just have him like coming in and, you know, the whole deal with the the card game and, you know, him drinking champagne all the time. Like he's not a character that you're like, Oh, that's obviously a good guy. So when they have that moment, when she says, Oh, doc gave this to me, you for at least a half second as if you were like, Oh God, maybe this, maybe they're going a totally different route 
with the story and making Doc Holliday like a pure villain. Uh, speaking of uh, the abuse that is hurled at characters by Doc Holliday, my favorite character in the film is the bartender, Mac. Mac's good. <laughs> There's a sequence where he's asked if he's ever been in love, and he says, no, I've been a bartender all my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Fantastic. I took a screenshot as I was watching it, and you know, on the uh, I was using my uh, beloved Stars app, which is of the, the official, you know, uh, the, the official the app show. for podcast official, directed by. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, like most of these video apps, you don't get to when you screenshot it won't allow you. It just goes black on like a Apple device, but it allowed me to remember the quote because I had it the subtitles on, so that, you know it still works. So I could recall that. Um, <laughs> Doc Holiday telling. Uh, his lover to squall her stupid little songs and leave, leave me alone <laughs> was, you know, rough mean, but I like the use of squall. I think, <laughs> I don't think you hear that too often. Good, good vocabulary word. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting it, when you have a movie like this with so many moving pieces, right? You've got the Earps. Um, of course the Earp brothers are, you know, not given a lot of screen time in this movie. They are kind of fodder, in this movie, like they're there to if be... I can get um, maybe slightly demeaning or uh, maybe this is uh, I don't know now. Maybe at the time, uh, even it would have been demeaning. But certainly now people uh, seem to be a little more body positive. There is one of the Earp brothers that has a huge ass, just a huge. <laughs> like, true. He is a, he's a big bear of a man. I'm not saying that he's out of shape. Uh, I, I think there is a certain segment of the population that would have made him like, you know, he would have been the poster on some people's walls because he is a <laughs> he is a thick gentleman. But there's a shot of him and Holiday uh, like <laughs> sort of uh, side saddling a fence. And I, I'm actually shocked at you, Dave, that this wasn't top of the show. This is I was like, not where I thought Christ. this was going to go. I was like, that, that is the biggest like man's ass I've ever seen on screen. Not played for comedic effect. Uh, riveting. Dave. Yeah, no, no padding here. This is all. But you know, this all is, that was that was why I was lamenting the screenshots not working because I, I wanted to go through like this Zapruder film and go over the, that sequence again. So what I was going to say before I, you know, my own fault for mentioning the Earth Brothers who are basically in this movie to get shot, um, is that you have so many moving pieces, right? You've got Wyatt, you've got Doc Holliday, um, you've got. Um, uh, you've got the Clantons, you've got your villains, and you've got these two female characters too. And I think if any one of those doesn't work, like this movie would kind of fall apart. Like there's not a dominant perspective in this movie. So mm. if one of, you know, it's not like pure, if this was purely from Wyatt's perspective, when you don't really care about Doc and Clementine, of course, the movie's called My Darling Clementine, so let's hope we don't go that route. But if one of those falls apart, then it's like, this is almost unwatchable, but all, especially all four of these lead characters are all pretty fantastic here. I think Chihuahua is one that would be, it's, it would be easy to make her the the hated character, the villain, right? She's the one getting in the way of Doc and Clementine. You know, she's the one who has the has the jewelry at the end and almost almost gets Doc killed. I mean, there's it's very easy to make her out to be bad, uh, but I think she's really good here too, and you understand why she makes the choices she does. And I think that's true well, of all these characters. She's fully formed. I mean, I I understand her position. I mean, she's. You know, she's just acting out of love as well. So it, it's weird in movies how we designate, you know, certain characters worthy of finding and receiving love. And yeah. so hers, I think more often than not, you would think, oh, isn't she silly that she can ever aspire to that that thing? She's always going to be 
the other woman. Well, she's not in her story. You know, she's right. not the other one woman in her world. So I actually I found her likable. I mean, I you know, as much as much as I laughed at the use of squall being thrown in her direction <laughs> to describe her singing, uh, I you know, if if <laughs> if Doc was just nicer to her, right, you probably get a nicer version of that character. Yeah, I mean, and there are definitely moments where you could, as an audience, kind of turn on her. Like, there's a whole scene where she's like just glowering at Clementine, being like, "Pack up your shit and go." <laughs> like, just in her room, Look, just standing over, her, like, "That's my man. You gotta go." <laughs> there's a variable that has messed up that we've introduced into the equation of Tombstone, and it's Clementine. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I feel like she's just practical and forward as far as you. Yeah, I'm from her, <laughs> her from her perspective. My life was pretty good. I got my man here. I got a decent job. Everything's pretty good until like Wyatt Earp comes and you know throws her in the water. Like everything was going all right, and then Clementine shows up, just blows up her spot completely, and like everything is kind of going wrong for her. I'll take being thrown in the water over the uh, spanking that he offers up to her for Mister yeah. Earp. I don't know Henry Fonda. I don't think it would be that good. The other brother, if he was offering up the spanking. <laughs> I believe that brother is also shirtless. So if I've not sold this enough to people, yep. uh, shirtless scene, gratuitous shirtless scene. He answers yep. the door shirtless for really no reason. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about I that. Do, I, you yeah. know what? I'm a researcher's guy. I think I I think that he was some sort of pinup. Maybe guy he was. Time. Maybe he was. There may uh, be hope yet for this country. <laughs> just just maybe. <laughs> uh, hopefully, you know, the 1940s were more body positive than now. That this man with this giant ass could be a pinup. Here's. Well, the sad thing is, you know, the 1940s may have been more, uh, you know, racially progressive than what we've got now, too. So (laughs) there's all sorts of different ways you can look at the past and be like, wow, times were better, even though they were terrible for a great portion of society. (laughs) That guy had a huge ass, huge ass. So take your wins where you can. That's right. So anytime you tell the story of White Earp and Doc Holliday, like, you know, you know where it's going to end. Right. We're all going to have the shootout at the OK Corral. So how did this in terms of how it was filmed? Were you impressed with the shootout here or did it feel dated and something you had to kind of muddle through? Hmm. Well, so it's not because uh, I, I actually got interested in it. Um, and so earlier today I was I, I listened to another podcast on the the gunfight at the OK Corral, like a, one of those like historical or like, you know, Mm -hmm. here's what we can parse through from the records, which were, I guess like today's times, like the, the media, there were two competing newspapers and one was like, like took the side of the herbs and the other one took the side of the, the Cowboys at the time. So it was kind of hard to, to get the story straight. But, uh, I would say if you've seen, let's say tombstone is your point of reference, then no, it's not, it's not the cinematic version you're used to. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as how up close and sort of uh, <laughs> the tombstone version and apparently I guess the real version did not take place on a, a wide stretch of land with a lot of obstacles and things you could dart behind. It was basically you went to someone's fenced in yard and you were like right on top of them and it was like 16 feet and then bullets start flying. So if you prefer that, you don't get that here, right? You get – in a different way, you get a, you know, it's a different cinematic experience where you have, you have this weird balance between Earp playing it where he tactically wants to win. He wants to put himself and his, his guys in position to win where they're sort of cornering an animal. 
but also maintain some semblance of decency by offering to do it the correct way. But their their approach is not like just straightforward. I'm the law. I will come and take your weapons from you, which is, I think, what you're used to seeing in Tombstone and the the sort of historical record as it is. Uh, instead, it's you know there's like this prowling bit where they they split apart and they flank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I have a, a preference. I I think I'm just glad that it was different than yeah. what I already knew. That's, so that's my main takeaway. Yeah, it's interesting. As I was, you know, of course, I can't not compare the two, right? Because mm-hmm. it's it's what's in my head as I'm watching the entire movie and especially the shootout. And what I love about both of them is they both fit their times really well. Like if you look at movies, like action movies in the 90s, even though Tombstone was set way back in the Old West, it really fits in with those kind of 90s action movies. Like, you got these, you know, badasses with shotguns and, you know, these dead-eye marksmen. Like, it, like, really fits that kind of testosterone-laced period um, of, of movies, right? In the yeah, 90s. there's no close-up on, like, upper lip sweat or, like, you know, an eye trembling or anything here. Like, it's it's right. done pretty much, like, you know, as, as darkness is, like, breaking and, you know, the, the sun is coming up. And it, it has that... Yeah, you know, it's done under cover, uh, yeah. and it's something we're going to see in another movie, uh, uh, unfortunately, on this episode, where horses, man, they just kick up so much dust, and it's so convenient for our heroes. <laughs> but I, I will say, like, that that moment you're talking about in this movie, uh, with the kind of dust shrouding uh, shrouding them, I really love that that moment cinematically. Like, I think this it makes is... Makes Earp more uh, like Batman or something. Makes yeah. him more like a legend, you know, coming out of the shadows exactly. there and standing victorious. So, looks very just, cool. And given the time, like, I was impressed with how well this was shot because when you're using black and white photography, like, things have to be stark, right? You There's not a lot of gradient that, that you're going to get like you would with full color photography. So, combining that with, you know, a, an attack that's kind of shrouded is really difficult. But Ford manages it, and it is, it's really suspenseful. Like, even though you kind of know who's going to come out of this and who's not, if you've heard the story before, it still really works, like, on a story level. And there's there's not much dialogue leading up to that sequence. It is, it's, it's interesting to watch a movie from the late 40s where everything culminates in an action sequence. Like, I think sometimes we think of that as being, like, a modern invention, like something in the 80s and 90s. But, like, no, this has actually been around for decades and decades. And I think honestly handled better here than a lot of movies I've seen in the eighties, nineties and two thousands. There's a, <clears throat> there's a uh, comfort where, uh, you know, now if you go to an action movie, you know, the main thing you're here is like, you know, they, they it was a, like a 10 minute long, no cut fight sequence or something, or there right. seems, you know, there, there's a need to do something differently to usually excess, and right. well, I mean, I, even things like the opening mm-hmm. of uh, sorry, what's the uh, the war movie that Spielberg did? Um, Saving the, Private Ryan. Yeah, save, that opening to Saving Private Ryan. That's like you wanted to go with you know, 1941. I know, but <laughs> yeah, that's still in my head, unfortunately. Yeah, but you're right. We do have this desire to like, well, we gotta we gotta push the envelope. Like we gotta do something insane. Like we're gonna, you know, it's gonna be 12 minutes with no dialogue and all action, and you know, it's all it's in one need- shot. To have that sequence, uh, you know, it's it's the video age. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to say it's the YouTube age. It's that too, where you can extract that and watch that one bit over and over. So VHS, Laserdisc, right. DVD, what have you. And you know, the old the old way of seeing something again is you went to see the whole thing again. So it had to fit in the context of that entire film. And if you're fitting it within the, the whole, 
you don't need it to be like, well, we got to top, we got to top the, what Neo did in the last matrix movie. (laughs) So exactly. I don't know. Sometimes I just find it more comfortable because I, I feel like I'm, I'm in that world and my expectations are appropriately managed because I've already had the, you know, first 90 minutes to sort of set the, set the scene. Um, Yeah. I don't get that with modern action movies. I feel like, right. you know, it's the Joel Silver beats you have to hit every 10 right. minutes or something. Exactly. I think the last thing I want to bring up is I also like how this movie, you know, you brought up how it's like, okay, I managed my expectations. <laughs> I know it's coming, but there's also some moments of subversion here. Like you have the moment where you're like, okay, you know, Doc Holliday is going to perform this surgery and he's going to have his heroic moment and they give it to him and then they yank it away from him immediately afterwards where it's like everything went great oh actually she's dying now sorry you know and it like and it makes it makes the action sequence that follows that even more poignant because you're like oh you know he had this confidence and he's lost it and then we gave him a little back and then we snatched it away again so he is a man you know with a little bit of a death wish throughout throughout the entire film and we gave him a little hope and now things are even worse for him it absolves the other characters, mainly White Earp, from like not talking him out of it because yeah. they talk out some other characters where it's like, hey, this is a family feud. Mm-hmm. You know, we lost our brothers to this, and so when Doc, you know, comes up and they're like, they ask, they inquire about her, and she died. Well, there's there's no conversation to be had. There's yeah. no there's no talking this man out of it, and they wouldn't feel justified in doing so because he lost someone as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is, I mean, My Darling Clementine, probably my favorite movie that we've watched of these so far. I really enjoyed my time with it. And I kind of liked that it could have been a straightforward revenge story, but it actually has a lot of levels. Very well written, very well directed, fantastically acted. Like, I couldn't be happier with this one. I wouldn't have picked it. Uh, I agree with you. It's my favorite of what we watched so far in the uh, Ford series. And I would have thought, like, well, that's stupid. Uh, with stagecoach being there, uh, right. or even you know the searchers coming up later, mm-hmm. uh, but no, this this one would be you know the one I I would most want to revisit, uh, like you know in the next year if I was like oh I'm gonna watch another John Ford movie and presumably one that I've already seen because as I've said at the start of the show I have so much trepidation every time I come out I'm like hey that was great. <laughs> The next one? I don't know. We'll uh, see. We'll see. The only bad thing about this movie is that it reinforced the idea that I should blind buy Criterions, because uh, that's what I did. I blind bought this, knowing we were going to watch it, but knowing nothing about it. I'm like, yeah, I'll spend $25 on that. Sure. And then it was great. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> Here we go again. Mm-hmm. Like forming bad habits. Yep. Thank you, John Ford. Yep, absolutely. All right. So we will take a little break, uh, probably hear from our John Ford expert, Paul Ponte, um, from the Screen Watchers Guild. And then we will come back to talk about She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. This is unfortunately where, once again, the, the Native Americans. Oh, oh, dear Lord. Yeah, it is not because the whole thing is, you know, they're sitting there talking about Custer and you know, Custer lost, Custer lost. What are we going to do about it? We're all scared. These these horrible beings are coming after all of us. And this expansion into the West, uh, what does it mean? We need to we need to secure this area for, you know, basically the future of America. This is where it gets like super patriotic. Uh, this is like the most patriotic John uh, uh, that John Ford can get is 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 in this movie because they very much have that whole manifest destiny ideal where they're like, Guys, we have to do this. We have to do this, you know, for the future of everyone. Uh, And by everyone, they mean white people. 
All right, so we are back, and now we're moving on to our next John Ford movie, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. So at the beginning of this episode, we kind of talked about, you know, trepidation about John Wayne as a lead character in a John Ford movie, not just this kind of side cool character like we got in Stagecoach. So what do you think of John Wayne and the movie as a whole, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon? I remember when we were uh, going over, hey, what's next? Um, Last time we recorded, I was like, wow, he looks really old. and. Uh, so not the first choice for this part, uh, from what I've read based on, uh, perceived acting talent from Mr. Ford on, on even having worked with him. Yeah, actually he wasn't going to cast him. Like when he first, you know, got this movie and got the script together, he was like, well, I know who I'm not going to put in this movie. And that's John Wayne. That was his quote about it. But then he saw him in a movie that someone else directed. And I think his quote was Red River. Yeah. Red River. He said, wow, that big son of a bitch can actually act. Maybe I'll put him in this movie. So they age him up a little bit. So he's, uh, you know, with our previous film talking about maybe some action movie cliches, he's a guy that's like two days away from retirement. It's not two days, but it's like, what, five days or something? It's very much the like lethal weapon, like kind of like I'm too old for this shit. I just got to get through this week. So I was a little hesitant, as I always am with John Ford, no matter how much I love. And I'm, I'm like, hey, that may be the best Western I ever saw. Do I want to watch another John Ford? Nah, I'm good. Uh, this one. <laughs> well, there's nowhere to go but down. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's got a silly title to me, which I find out as I'm watching it. Oh, it's another song that they it's, sing. I'm like, it's Jesus. weirdly like this is almost a musical. Like this yeah. is as close to John Ford gets, and it's. It's a lot. So, yeah, I, I can't. Now, my you know, I asked previously, like, can we please focus on rich people? Now I'm just like, can we please have a movie that's not named after a song? Please tell me The Searchers <laughs> is not named after a popular uh, song of the time period. Um, John Wayne playing old, I actually really like here because <laughs> even though he's the lead, um, it's not John Wayne as prime, right? It's right. the one who's the most experienced. Uh, but it makes him far more likable because mm-hmm. of that experience. He has a confidence that is not arrogance. It's just, I've seen it all. And so even the sort of annoying tendencies of the very young that he's working with, <laughs> he's just sort of bemused by it. Like right. he, he sort of lectures him or wraps him on the knuckles, but in the very, like, like the best fatherly way, mm-hmm. like you still have a job to do, but I get it. I, I was young once, that sort of thing. And most of it, um, I have a feeling, uh, based on how you you led into this, that we're gonna have very different reactions. Because I'm I'm digging most of this because to me it's like, is this is this the only time John Ford did like a rom com? Because it's like we have this weird, like weird love triangle, love triangle again. But yep. it's the two young guys, and John Ford seems to be aware that both of them are like pining for time with this lady who wore a yellow ribbon. Yeah. Picnicking? Uh, it's my favorite moment of the movie, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he had nothing, no problem with uh, picnicking as long as it was a man doing it solo. But, you know, very manly <laughs> act. You do it on your own. Um, you have the floor. Sir, I have denied Mr. Pinnell permission to leave the post. And for what purpose did you wish to leave the post, Mr. Pinnell? Picnicking, sir. Picnicking? Picnicking, Miss Dandridge? Where in St. Louis? Oh, no, sir, just out by the waterfall. But I'm sorry, sir. Never apologize, mister. It's a sign of weakness. Mr. Cohill, I see no reason why Mr. Pinnell should not go picnicking. Very good, sir. Thank you, Captain Brittles. But, Miss Dandridge, Mr. Cohill was quite right in denying you permission to leave the post under the present emergency. So may I escort you to your quarters? You may proceed with your picnic, Mr. Pinnell. So, I mean, this is, um, 
more well i don't know if more comical because stagecoach had a lot of comedic beats but oh, this it's is way sort of, more comical i think than stagecoach. more comical in tone uh yes. mm-hmm. maybe you know maybe the jokes don't land as well yeah as stagecoach, it's not but, as funny but it's more comical yeah <laughs> uh but it's you know it's a we have to transport these people from point a to b uh and then hijinks ensue along the way right mm-hmm. um i've not seen the other two in this thematic trilogy this is apparently the middle section yeah so i can't comment on that and i can't even really comment why this made the list dave do you remember was it just one that was yeah we we found (laughs) in our vast vast research we you know looked up you know top 10 john ford movies and looked at all these lists and this was on most of them like this is one of the ones that gets i feel like this was the one that was very questionable to both of us because we're like okay it's the middle one of this Mm -hmm thematic trilogy and i also feel like the informer was the other one we were like do we start here so uh yeah you know, we got off on kind of uh not the best ground with the informer i came around to it eventually yes this one i was i was pretty much in from the word go because i just thought it was so lighthearted. however the threats uh the, th- the threat level is not lighthearted at all right. and that was a weird balance i think for the i don't know if it strikes it <laughs> completely well um, I kind of wish it just leaned more into like a day in the life of process without that imminent danger of like, you know, impending war that's about to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think you've really hit on my problem with this one. I think this is fine. Uh, it's, it's probably, if I had to like rank them, this would probably be at the bottom of the ones that we'd watched so far. Oh, you don't want to hear um, my ranking of this then. <laughs> um, I think I, I just, have it above stagecoach as far as my enjoyment level. I just think like tonally I, it's really weird. It's a it strikes a really weird balance and it never really hits for me. The the danger is too dangerous, the the humor is too funny, and it just never really matches. Um I mean you have uh, you know, star of the informer in this movie, you know, hiding liquor bottles and plants and like just it's very it's very like it's very like drawing room comedy <laughs> stuff it's very strange uh the musical stuff is very weird and then it like like you said the first 30 minutes of this movie i actually really enjoyed um and if the whole movie was like this i probably would have loved it but you mixed in this whole like oh the savages are out to get us and you know like him but talking to his really? dead wife and i i don't know <laughs> Like, are they like it's it sounds like they're kind of, as usual, historically minding their own business. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I will say, um, you know, I walked into this thinking like, oh, John Wayne, I don't know. But I really like John Wayne in this movie. I think he's very good. And I think he is given a lot of the heavy lifting of kind of working with these two very different tones. And I think he does a really good job with it. Like the stuff I mentioned at the beginning with him, like. You know, kind of giving his uh, <laughs> his subordinates a bunch of crap about going picnicking and like, you know, kind of playing with their emotions and kind of setting them straight, you know. And then you've got him essentially for most of the movie dealing with failure, like not only dealing with getting older and giving up his spot, but like everything that he tries to do pretty much in this movie fails. Right. He's, you know, he's trying to bring these people on this trip and that doesn't work out. He goes and talks to the Indian chief and that doesn't work out. It's like, nope, sorry. Yeah, I agree. But we're going to fight anyway. Like, well, it's it's like marginalizing uh, a lifetime of experience. Right. Which mm-hmm. is, So there should be a degree of confidence. that's like I've seen it all. I've heard it all. I have the answers. And so it's like a man. I don't read it as just 
entirely conceited or selfish. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I should be able to solve everything because I'm me. I'm John Wayne. I'm older John Wayne. Uh, it read more like to me that like there's only so much like humans can control in their life. And it's like, so I'm doing everything the okay. right way or the way I've been taught and it's worked before and it's not working now. And it's like, so it's like, it, I think it's, is a really good performance from Wayne. And yeah. I read that this is like, I think his favorite performance he ever gave of himself. Um, it's very self-assured. It's a very, it's very calm, you well, know, it's, like it's self-assured in how a man is facing the unknown. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, well, if I can't solve it, like, what is my life going to be like a week from now? Like he has this, line where he's like you know he like men look to him like when he walks into a room and like you know to, this time next week a blacksmith may not even like look his direction like when he walks right. into like you know to buy something basically or to ask a question he won't even get eye contact uh so it, there it is all over the place totally because i mean there are genuine moments of doubt and this like reflection he's having while also messing with you know, the young people, like he's a college professor and he's like seeing all these hormones flying left and right. And he's just like moving them around the chessboard just, yeah. just for his own amusement. <laughs> I dug it, Dave. I, I dug all of it. I, I, I love the angst and I love like fucking with people's sex lives or lack thereof. <laughs> That's actually, you know, that last part is probably my favorite part of the movie. Like there's <laughs> uh, there's there's this one one particular moment where she this lead female character first comes out with the yellow ribbon in her hair, which we are told repeatedly uh, that that means you have a sweetheart in the cavalry, right? So that is the recurring theme here. It's the leather, you know, the, the letterman's jacket that yes. you have there, or the ring. It's like the leather. Where are we going here? Um, that but, was for the uh, previous talk with yes. the guy with huge ass. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I love the moment where, you know, he asks her, like, who is that for? And she kind of plays along with him and says, oh, it, of course it's for you. And his, like, very genial laugh at that moment like it it, it's it's a moment that could be played in a way that feels way too presentational and way too showy but like that honestly felt like this you know this 60 year old man like being genuinely entertained by all the machinations of young love Mm because he remembers it and there's there's also some really sweet moments where he goes and talks to the the grave of his wife and kind of recounts everything that's going on it's a little bit repetitive uh but i like it it it's a very it's rare that we see John Wayne have these very human moments. And this is the most down-to-earth I've seen him in a film. Sounds like you really liked it, Dave. Why, why are you coming it, in so hard I, on it? Well, you've noticed everything that I've liked about it is in the first 30 to 45 minutes. Once they got on the road, I'm kind of like, I don't know. This seems like we're just kind of stretching this plot very thinly. And Wayne then it gets really... the shit out of this shack <laughs> that's falling apart. I like that. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the moment of failure, right? Where he's just like, everything is coming to a head. And I think at that moment, he feels, you know, basically useless. And that he's going to be, you know, essentially put out to pasture. And that scene by itself works. But when paired with everything else that's happened in the movie so far, I'm kind of like, I don't, uh, I want to get back to the romantic comedy. Can we get back to the fun stuff? I don't care about this. Well, okay, so I was kind of making fun of... Um... Ford, especially in our back-to-back, our double feature for this episode, uh, kicking up dust as like a smoke cloud for his yes. various Batman, you know, heroes. <laughs> I, you know, I, maybe I didn't like that it was uh, happening again because uh, I wa- I did watch these legitimately back-to-back, but I really did dig that the way out of this situation that Wayne finds himself and the men that he's, you know, rode alongside, and now he feels like he's leaving to possible peril 
was to not fight, was to just cause a distraction, a cover, and then just, you know, just run like hell. Like, you know, basically there was there was a weird heroism to it uh, that I wouldn't expect from this time period where there, you know, it was not let's kill them all or we'll fight our way through it or I'll find out, I'll get more guns or more people mm. and bring about more violence and pain and death. And that's how you win. There's no might makes right here. Right. It's just, you know, let, let's just, let's just try this. Let's just try it together. And uh, I mean, they, they make a point to say like, you know, did anyone anyone get killed? Did we lose anyone? And mm-hmm. they, no, did, I mean they don't say no one was not wounded, but they're like, nope, no one died. Yeah. I don't. I thought it was a strange, strangely pacifist, if you can call it that, like ending to this type of western. I I did not see coming at all. I thought yeah, okay, I, he attempted to make peace and that didn't work. I was like, okay, so it's going to end in carnage, but no, it's, you know, right. everything works out. Yeah, um, it got for me for the it, white people. I might yeah. add. Historically, everything so, works out for the white people. <laughs> we we tend to do pretty well. Um, we got those smallpox blankets. We're good to go. But I was wondering, like, when we in previous episode we talked about Stagecoach, and you compared uh, the Native Americans of that film to a natural disaster. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which go back and listen to it. It's much better than it sounds. It's not as I mean, as it sounds. It, you you flip it right. It's actually the white people that are the natural disaster to this yeah. country. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> whatever. Okay, in the movie, it's it's flipped. So, what do you prefer in that movie? You know, they're kind of you know basically faceless. They're just the the black hats. They're the they're the villains of the piece. And in this, mm. you've got uh you got you got some sh- some shades here, right? You've got this you know this Indian chief that he has a relationship with, and they seem seem to be friendly, and you know they like each He's other. Also very old. And yeah. he, he also talks about like, you know, we, we don't have power to change things anymore. Right. That's it's like, you know, here, we, what we can do is we can go off, we can like smoke, we can get drunk, but basically we, we no longer have the ability to shape the world. I like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's played a little goofier than what I would have wanted. It's you a know, little silly. Course. Yeah. But what he was saying, I, I really liked, um, I, I, I mean, for the most part, I like that there's not anything that Wayne does as far as drawing a weapon and like shooting his way through a you know, situation. Uh, you know, he, he goes with a plan and that plan's shot down kind of rightfully so by someone who's also, you know, his peer. And he has to just walk out like empty handed. I, I, I like this better than stagecoach. I mean, you can't have this version in stagecoach. I think they work right. for their respective stories they're trying sure. to tell. But if you're just asking me just on the face of it, which one do I like more? Yeah. I like having like an, an old, uh, enemy here who does not present himself as the enemy. He he presents himself as like, you know, you and I are very much alike. Uh, yeah. But we we basically have to have survivor's guilt to get to that point, to, right. to share that similarity. The young people are not going to feel that way at all. Right. It's an interesting choice to have, you know, John Wayne and this older Native American be largely ineffectual mm-hmm. to, to yeah. the plot itself. Um, and I think it's saying something about old age and like what that means and, you know, transferring into a different phase of life. Um, but it definitely was not what I expected. Like you expect like, oh, he's going to give his impassioned plea to the Indian chief and everything is going to work out or it's not. And he, like you said, he's going to have to shoot his way out of trouble. But instead he's like, I mean, we can just sit down and smoke this pipe. Uh, we can have some drinks. That sounds pretty yeah, that, good to that's me. A couple things we can do. I'm cause, just because they're going to fight. I mean, no matter what you do, and it, yeah, that, 
that the, old dude is just going down the list. He's like, this sounds good. <laughs> this sounds good. What, right. do, what do you want from me, basically? Right. And I think it's I think it's a really interesting choice to have your your lead here be someone who not only like in terms of the Western stereotype fails. Right. He doesn't he doesn't quote unquote win at kind of anything <laughs> during the entire runtime of the movie, minus the like, you know, making fun of the the subordinates. He's really good at that. But everything else, like his job is to like protect these people and that didn't really work out. He went to go stop this war and that didn't really work out. But you know what, Dave? He keeps failing upwards. He gets promotion. <laughs> he does at the very end of the movie. I wanted to ask <laughs> you about that, what you thought about that. Because I actually do really like that moment because I still think even in the face of all this failure and all the things that are going on, he does the moral thing throughout the film. Like there's never a moment where you're like, Oh God, what an asshole this guy is. Mm. Like he's taking a shortcut or he's killing someone he shouldn't any of that. He does the right thing. And I like, you know, there's a part of me, a simple part of me that likes movies that reward characters who do the right and moral thing. And I, I like that ending for him. I mean, you know, watching it now, I don't know if I like that uh, they they have to shout out like, hey, wouldn't it be great if <laughs> Robert E. Lee? Yeah, that's also a little like, I was like, ooh. <laughs> giving you this promotion or something. <laughs> like wince at that. but um, And, you know, I, I like to think that maybe people at the time winced as well. You know, people that don't like rooting for losers who are famous for losing. How do you think that was <laughs> received? It was so weird for me because I just, I immediately associate that with negativity. But I don't know how much of that is because of the modern lens. Like, I wonder if in the 40s it was like, yeah, that guy was kind of an asshole, but I respect him for what he did or blah, blah, blah. Because it's played that way where he's like, hot damn. <laughs> like, <laughs> wouldn't that yeah. be fantastic? And I'm like, would you it? Know, that sounds terrible. Yeah, it's uh, it's very much played. Like, wouldn't it be cool if, like, Kim Kardashian shouted me out on Instagram? Like, it's played almost just as fame whoring. More. I, I yeah. don't know. That was my read of it. Uh, I, yeah, I wish that was not there. I, I don't know, like... I actually liked I kind of like the more sparse ending where he looks at his watch and he's like, I've been a civilian for two minutes now. Mm. And so basically that means, you know, my work here is done. Like and he doesn't end on failure. You know, at least for him, he gets those people out of there. I like, you know, maybe him just riding off in the sunset. Now, maybe at the time you feel like, well, they always ride off in the sunset. So we got to let's throw one more little bit in here. Right. Right. I, I, I think I would have preferred the the cleaner you know, ending where he's, he enters civilian life, like with nothing like hanging over him, nothing on his shoulders anymore. Yeah. And no Robert E. Lee shout out, Dave. Yeah. Let's, let's get rid of that. Yeah. That's you like that. Of course, you know, I have to, I I didn't say I like the Robert E. Lee shout out. I like the fact that he gets a happy ending, that he is appreciated for everything that he's given up and everything that he's done. Uh, so yeah. Um, so now that we've covered these two movies, where do you stand with uh, with John Ford as we kind of as we move forward? Our next two movies that we are going to be covering are, you know, we've got uh, one Western, one not so much. We have The Quiet Man and The Searchers. Maybe if not Stagecoach, The Searchers is probably the most critically acclaimed of mm. John Ford's work. So where are you kind of going into this this double feature? Well, uh, you know, for my money, this double feature has been my favorite. This is like one and two of as far as what I've enjoyed watching the most and talking about and thinking about. Um, there's going to be a lot of pressure, not only just for that reason, but the next two are the only ones that I own as well. And 
Quiet Man I bought just for this podcast. It was only five dollars, but it's still you know I'm five dollars in the red for the. For, for I feel like I'm gonna have to start Venmoing Mike money if he doesn't <laughs> like how much of that would cost. Ugh, sorry, buddy. <laughs> Uh, the Searchers has sat on my shelf for years, so you know we won't we won't say that one's tied to uh, for tax purposes a podcast directed <laughs> by, but Quiet Man definitely is. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, I, I feel like coming into this, Stagecoach and Searchers are the two layups, or should be. Right. Uh, but we'll see. I've never you know I had not rewatched those either, so I've I've only right. Searchers is just a uh, one time only thing, uh, but. I, I'm doubting that I'll find either one as entertaining as these two. I feel like these have been the most two most entertaining for me. And maybe that's just because it's not How Green Was My Valley, which is <laughs> a slog of depression and despair. While still good, uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily entertaining. Right. Yeah, for me, I'm looking forward to it mainly because I think it's going to be a very strange double feature, right? Like this last one was like, okay, we're back to all the Westerns. Okay. That's great. The the one before that, it was like, oh, we, we've got the, you know, the, the Oscar winner, you know, it's something to hold on to. Whereas this, you know, the quiet man, um, to my knowledge is more of a romance. Um, and the searchers and both starring John Wayne, um, and the searchers is very much not. And he plays like very much a, in some ways, a despicable character. So I think it's going to be an interesting, uh, kind of contrasting look at John Wayne as an actor. So I'm looking forward to to that piece of it. Just Because I think, you know, I've liked John Wayne in all the movies we've watched so far, but a lot of the characters are pretty similar, right? They're not that far apart. Like you could see, you know, Ringo from Stagecoach, if he went down a different road, becoming this character and she wore a yellow ribbon. They're not that that far apart. Uh, but these two characters will be very different. So I'm inter- interested to see, especially back to back, how that plays. And hopefully no Robert E. Lee shout yeah, outs. Hopefully we can we can avoid that. Hopefully hopefully that'll be the last mention of Robert E. Lee on a podcast. I just wanted to give you uh a, you know the room and the edit so that you you finished with that because I threw you under the bus the first time around. So I gave you another chance to say yes. No no more of that, please. No more of that. All right, so that is it for this episode. Uh, In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more from us, I don't know why you would. There's a lot of material out there, but if you just can't get enough, then you should follow us on social media. Uh, Just look up Directed by Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, And connected to that, you can easily find um, the handles of me and Mike if you want to attack us directly. We'd love to hear what you think of the show, what you think of the movies, if you're watching along with us. So uh, feel free to do that. And uh, in the meantime, you should uh, go watch The Quiet man and the searchers for next week. Yeah.